0: There we go. Hello. I'm packing my bags ahead of a summer break, and you may be too. But can you keep your eye off markets and economies? Can you be confident that things will tick along, or are there just too many variables up in the air threatening to come down with a bump? Join me for answers from an expert pre-holiday panel. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. Well, with me today are Steve Ellis, Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, Anna Stubnitska, Global Macroeconomist, and Equities Portfolio Manager, Rosanna Bukeri. Welcome to you all. Hi, Richard.
1: Hi, Richard. Thank you for having us.
0: Now, Anna and Steve, we last spoke on this podcast in March, just after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, when things seemed very uncertain. Three months on, the sky hasn't fallen on our heads, equity markets are still on the rise, while inflation is high and rates keep on rising. Now, Anna, this isn't the way that things are meant to pan out in the textbooks, is it?
2: That's right. We have learned that actually policymakers can be very effective uh, at dealing with troubles. uh, And uh, so far, at least, they have been effective at Separating uh, macroprudential instruments of so financial stability policies from interest rate policies. We have moved towards uh, a narrative that's dominating markets right now uh, of a soft lending, uh, no recession, and also that the policy transmission lags are either very long or very short. And we're yet to find out. So you're right, it's a very different environment from. Uh, when we talked uh, on this podcast after SVB,
0: so Steve, would you agree that it's the macroprudential, um, the firefighting that has worked um, in this case? But I, I imagine you're a little bit more sceptical about the monetary policy side.
3: Well, yeah, and I agree with Anna in that the BTFP, which is the policy that the Fed put in place as a you know, emergency backstop for um, bolstering our reserves, uh, you know, that that certainly calmed the storm, if you like. Um, but I don't. I don't think SVB that that whole reserve loss and the you know the duration mismatch on their balance sheets has gone away, Richard. I think we were having this discussion the other day. I think it's like the the savings and loans crisis, where this you know end to end that was a long process, and you know we've, we're just at the start of this. I think you know the the big problem again is the duration mismatch because of the inversion of the curve, and you know really the the problem has been alleviated in the short term because of the backstop, but also you know, what you've seen is that, you know, rather than the reserve depletion from the, uh, you know, lots of the regional banks, the market's been kind of liquefied by the rundown in the, the, the reverse repo uh, facility, which was two and a half trillion down to $2 trillion now. And there's, you know, there's kind of a loss of liquidity, which has been swilling around, which I think is partly responsible for asset markets doing so well. So this is, this is not going to go, especially with that inversion of the curve persisting. I think we'll probably see some more uh, skeletons coming up in the next uh, few quarters or so.
0: Rosanna, coming to you, you focus on the U.S. obviously in uh, buying equities. What, what is the picture that you're picking up from the companies that you, that you cover on the ground?
1: A lot of companies tells you that uh, there it smells already like uh, like a recession and a slowdown since uh, the second half of uh, of last year. Um, the the prob, I mean, the problem. The thing is that in the numbers, uh, uh, inflation plays uh, a little bit of of a trick, so you you don't see it. But hence uh, the setup uh, is actually very bullish for equity, and in a certain way, explain uh, how the market is uh, is behaving um, because uh, the slowdown and it's mainly in terms of uh, destocking. Um, and uh, resizing of the capacity for example uh, you, we've seen it in the semiconductor in uh, in in chemical companies uh, has really starting in the second quarter of last year so we're actually at the end of it and that's why you know from from the company the bad news is already behind us and we're actually in this point where uh, we are one or two quarter into this uh, cyclical upturn
0: so you're actually diametrically opposed to the view that Steve just uh, set out. So he, he thinks there's, there's trouble ahead, whereas you're saying, no, no, we've, we've got the bad news, that's already baked in.
1: Well, you've seen, uh, for example, in uh, semiconductors, uh, companies have, uh, are burning cash, but you know they enter the period uh, uh, the industry is a better set up in terms of the concentration, uh, the balance sheet were in better state. So yes, they're burning cash, but they can withstand that. Chemicals. We have seen a flurry uh, of a profit warning already in Europe and uh, and in the US, but the company are telling you, you know, it's because of this stocking. There was a a lot of overcapacity uh, built in China, now the market is, is self-correcting and we know from uh, from history that uh, this stocking phase can last a two or three quarter. Even if we think that this time they are lasting four to five to six quarter, we are almost at uh, at uh, at the end of, uh, at the end of it. The only area that uh, you know is probably is linked to what Anna and, and Steve were saying that we have not yet seen tangible evidence. Uh, um, of, uh, of bad news in, in commercial real estate is very much linked to then to bank lending. Uh, only in these quarterly numbers that we're just going uh, going through from the bank, we're starting really a ramp up in terms of provisioning for commercial real estate, mainly focusing on the office space.
0: Okay, well, that is one of the, the warning signs, isn't it? Um, so perhaps we'll come to that in, in a few minutes. But I want to come back to you, Anna, and, and get your take on all of this because... The the threat of recession um, has been looming over us since, you know, before the start of this year. Um, I know that you and the rest of the macro team have been discussing your forecasts um, this week. Um, given that, you know, this is the, the sword of Damocles that hasn't yet fallen, are we immune to a recession, do you think?
2: I don't think we are immune to the recession. Uh, and in fact... Um Uh, For now, we are maintaining our conviction that we will see a recession and we have a high conviction on the end point that this is where we're heading. Then on the timing, uh, we have pushed the timing uh, out already uh, from middle of this year to Uh, end of this year and potentially 2024. We are investigating why we are seeing this continued resilience and uh, we think that one of the key reasons... Um, again, is those uh, COVID-related distortions, uh, such as excess savings, both for the corporate sector um, and for the consumer. There are various views on where excess savings uh, are now uh, across the board. Uh, So as we look uh, over the next few months, we think this tailwind is fading. And at the same time, those policy Uh, tightening transmission lags are quite long we are already seeing that in the credit channel and in fact that stress in the financial system we we saw in March uh, was one of the warning signs Um, There is a slow-moving credit crunch going on, which we can see uh, from a number of different indicators, whether it's survey-based or actual indicators, that credit crunch is slow-moving through the credit channel. And we are expecting that this policy tightening will start hitting the real economy over the next few months. This is very much out of consensus right now, but we maintain that view.
0: I was going to come to that because um, you're you're saying it's a high conviction you've pushed back when you think it's going to happen the recession but you do think it's going to happen and it's it's something like 80 percent or something like that is the uh, the forecast that you have your certainty
2: 80 percent yes yeah. for a cyclical recession which is not a very deep recession perhaps relatively shallow moderate recession not too long but nevertheless, Growth contraction mm-hmm. over a few, a few quarters. If I may add, I think because
1: Anna touched on two very important things that are different from other period of recession as slowdown. One that the corporate, above all in the US, they've entered this very difficult, very difficult period. Actually, well, well equipped with very solid, solid balance sheets. Um, and the consumer that we know, for example, in the U.S. is really the big driver of, uh, of the GDP in the U.S. also entered uh, this very tough period with interest rate uh, rising in very, very good condition. We have never seen so much cash that was injected directly into the pocket of the U.S. consumer like we have seen in 2020 and 21. Unemployment is, is very low. Uh, you know, there are one6 job for every unemployed person Uh, almost 86 percent of uh, the employable population is uh, is employed so the consumer is uh, is uh, is holding up uh, is yes it is he is running down or she is running down the the savings that have accumulated during covid but with unemployment so low and wages that are increasing year after year you know the consumer can hold up pretty pretty well
0: so that's that's bolstering the um, softish landing. It's not quite a soft landing, Anna, is it? Because you're still um, talking about a recession, but certainly it's m- maybe the reason why things have been um, prolonged. Um, the, the, the good news has been prolonged.
2: Yeah, this is why we think uh, the effects of uh, monetary policy tightening have not shown up yet in a more pronounced manner in the real economy. Uh, but uh, because of the tightens of the labour market, because of this uh, strength of the consumer, the Fed and other central banks have to do more, Uh, not not just uh, in terms of uh, hiking rates further from here, but keeping them there for a long time. And so we think that uh, because of this strength, in a way, uh, monetary policy has to get tighter to tame inflation, and that will have to produce growth damage for the economy.
0: Well, Steve, let me come to you on that, because that, that sounds like the sort of thing that you've been talking about in the past of um, central banks overdoing things, over tightening and the damage that they might cause um, in, in their wake.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's the, the irony, uh, to be honest, is that the narrative has changed uh, in the last uh, few months or so, in that at a time when inflation expectations and this evidence now coming through, that inflation isn 't sticky, but it's actually coming it's actually coming off harder um than expected and it, you can see that yeah you know, and and when you look at the kind of forward looking indicators, whether it's things like money supply growth or supply chains or whatever, you know we could be even be talking about deflation at the end of the year there's lots of political pressure as well um you know you can see that for example, jeremy Hunt in the u k Chancellor was pressurizing supermarkets into you know, not not just holding prices steady, but cutting prices. There's, you know, there's just at a time when inflation expectations are now, you know, right near the uh, the bottom, and inflation is coming uh, lower. Um, central banks have gone the opposite way. They they're not taking their foot off the brake. Uh, they're actually putting it, they're stamping down even harder. And I think they're emboldened by the fact that markets have actually held up, so they are kind of almost justifying the need and also as mentioned the labor markets are still at the least on the surface looking relatively tight. But they they feel emboldened here. They nothing's cracked so far. So therefore they keep going. And I think that's the problem here for markets is that central banks do over tighten. Um, you know, the Fed are likely to hike one more time to take policy rates of five and a half percent. You know, I would say we'll probably look back at this and think five and a quarter, which is where we are right now we were already at very restrictive policy rates, and the Fed overdid it. Um, and I think that's what markets, by in the next coming months, will focus more and more on that. Actually, though they, they just those last remaining uh, few rate hikes were not necessarily needed, and those will have to be, you know, priced out. The market will have to look at doing a U-turn and/or. Uh, you know, changing course on on balance sheet expansion on, on QT.
0: So that's a worrying outlook. So far, equity markets have ignored that risk. The S&P just keeps heading higher and has beaten a lot of expectations. Um, what about credit markets? Because they're normally the first, um, like you, you know, as a CIO in fixed income, to be spotting the, the dangers. Have credit markets um, taken fright? Let, let me just start by saying that,
3: you know, we can all talk about the breadth in, in equity markets and so on. And so the underlyings are, You know, whilst the the headlines might be that uh, equity markets have been um, rising more recently. The underlying fragility is there when you look at the breadth. Credit markets aren't buying it, right? They're not buying it. We're seeing uh, when we look at credit spreads uh, year to date, we're pretty much where we started the year. So US high yield, for example, we're trading about 390 basis points and and investment grade about 130 basis points. So not, not far away from where we started. We haven't seen that broad-based contraction in credit spreads more recently as equity markets have been going higher. So credit is not buying. It's saying, "Hang on a minute, this just doesn't feel right at all." Um, So, and and I think, but when you look at credit markets here, you know, the question is just how, if we do get recession, whether it's going to be a a hard landing, soft landing, and so on. um, I've I've mentioned many times that you you know high yield markets are not braced for a, a recession at all. You know, you've got um, default, the kind of implied default, which is priced in to that spread of, let's call it 400 basis points for argument's sake on U.S. high yield. It's just, you know, it's way too low. It's about, you know, four and a half percent or so in the next one year. And, you know, we could see a much harder landing than that. So you just don't get any cushion there at all. So I, I'd say, I would say markets have been very much lulled into this false sense of security in that um I think what's what's causing this is that you know Anna mentioned that you know the credit markets the the extension of credit we're seeing a credit crunch in um the real economy, but what we're seeing is massive credit expansion in the sort of financial area the the there's huge kind of expansion interbank bank expansion of credit banks are lending to others looking you know willing to invest in the AI phenomenon and you know it, so that I think that's what's happening is there's a ton of liquidity going around in the interbank market, and that's feeding its way into asset markets, and therefore asset, you know, equity markets have been in relatively well.
0: But underlying, I think it's a lot more sinister. And, uh, Rosanna, is that the picture that that you're you're seeing? With the companies that you cover, um, I know that credit is drying up for small cap companies. Uh, what about the larger cap ones in, in in the states? Are they are they worried about this, or have they still got this cushion that you were talking about at the beginning? So that they don't need to worry.
1: Well, they still they still have uh, most of the company. They still have uh, they still have a cushion. I mean, we've have, we've have seen a few company that you know that have uh, to to refinance that. Uh, sort of uh, uh, highlight the fact that that uh, interest costs are, are going up but there's always you know there are always uh, the the, peop, the the kind of companies that didn't renegotiate that what I like to think is that if you think about, you know, we have been uh, we have been through this period of ten years with very very low interest rate. If you had if you had if you were a sensible chief financial officer of a company, you had tried to renegotiate and lengthen the duration of the debt as much as possible and, and locked a very low interest rate, and that's what we have seen. And above all, that was uh, uh, a trend that was accentuated uh, at the beginning of the COVID when. When still the interest rates were were low, because uh, chief financial officer sort of panicking, they wanted to restructure the balance sheet and make make sure that uh, they had uh, they had put the the house uh, house in order, and they are benefit. You know, most of the company they are benefited right now. It is true that if you are a company that have not renegotiated that or. Uh, you are more dependent on the short-term debt. Uh, interest rate costs are are going up, and they're going to impact uh, impact the cash flow. But like I said, overall, when you when you step back and you look at the o- overall uh, health of uh, of the U.S. corporate, uh, they are pretty good. You're always going to find the company that was too much leveraged and entered the period with too much leverage. But it's very very punctual. Um, it's not something that can be seen across uh, across the system.
0: That's where you get to pick and choose amongst the uh, the, the companies, of course. Um, Anna, what about you? What, what are you watching in this particular area that um, that either causes you concern or some of the comfort that, uh, that Rosanna is talking about?
2: Well, first of all, what we're seeing from uh, bank lending surveys is that uh, credit standards have tightened, um, again, across developed markets, not just the U.S., um, we didn't see uh, a really large tightening after the SVB and related stress in the financial system. So there was some tightening, but not, not too large. And I think that gave some um, comfort perhaps to markets. Uh, but even with the tightening credit standards that we have seen so far, uh, if we look at actual credit, uh, we are likely to see actual credit uh, contracting by the end of this year. So there is a lag, uh, but we're already seeing that feeding into actual credit numbers. And then from the demand side, uh, also the service points to much weaker demand. Uh, for uh, mortgages, but also uh, consumer loans, auto loans, credit cards, etc., again, across the board. So, um, consumers are also uh, demanding less credit, and and again, that will be reflected in actual numbers. So, we do think the slowdown is happening through the credit channel. Um, One thing I would say, uh, to Rosanna's point, uh, is that Um, The long period of um, interest rates being at um, uh, zero effective bound meant that the transmission mechanism for monetary policy has changed Um, and it has potentially become longer because companies and households have locked in uh, credit and and mortgages at very low rates. And this is something that is uh, very concerning uh, for the Bank of England, for example. They have talked about it on a number of occasions that given that uh, a lot of um, uh, mortgages have been moved to fixed rates, that means that effectively, economy has become less sensitive to that monetary tightening. So ironically, they have to do more, but also at some point when these mortgages roll over and this is happening um, over the next few months, but also 24, 25 in the UK, uh, when the maturity wall for corporates becomes higher, and I'm sure Rosanna is watching that in the US from 24 onwards, um, this is where we can start fe- really feeling that tightening, feeding through. Uh, but for sure, the, the nature of the transmission mechanism has changed, and that's something that we are doing a lot of research on and, and watching very closely.
0: I look forward to hearing about that when you're, when you're ready, Anna. Um, in the meantime, we're all looking for... The, uh, the the weather vanes that will point which way things are going to go, or perhaps when, which is the key point that you've been um, talking about. And one leading indicator of um, market stress can be seen in the chemicals sector, where companies have delivered, as you mentioned, Rosanna, um, a slew of poor quarterly results. Now, chemicals companies supply the raw materials to hundreds of other sectors. So they're often the canary in the coal mine for falling end consumer demand. Could the disappointing results be a sign of this elusive recession? My colleague Nina Flitman has been talking to three analysts who cover the sector from different asset class perspectives. And here she is finding out more.
4: Now, Mike Dolan, you are a director of research in our fixed income team. Why is there such a focus on what's happening in the chem sector recently?
5: There's a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, ke- uh, chemicals are pervasive, right? They're, they're everywhere. They reach every end segment uh, and so are seen as a good barometer for the, the global economy. Uh, also, I, I think um, it's in focus because there seems to be an element of surprise here in that a lot of companies had flagged that destocking was coming to an end, uh, but that apparently has not been the case. Uh, and that's why we're seeing these these warnings coming through.
4: I'm also joined by Liz Brockway, who covers the market from a private credit perspective. Where have we seen weaknesses on the private side? Previously, when we've seen destocking, we always see resilience in certain of the end markets like
1: personal care, health care, pharma and agriculture. So in all honesty, we've seen it across the whole space, which has been quite shocking, which just speaks to how much inventory is in the system, and that it's not just that weakness in the in market demand.
4: Also, here is equity analyst Pam Pan Xiao. Now, Pampan, how long do you think the effects of what we've seen in 2021, 2022, those supply chain issues, are going to be felt?
6: What we've seen is that over the course of 2021, so right after COVID, companies um, throughout the value chain all suffer from uh, supply chain disruptions. So everyone is thinking of adding safety stocks So throughout the chain. For chemical companies themselves, the revenues is doing really, really well. Um, but then now it's basically a reverse of what's been going on for the last almost um, 18 months. And then if you look at the end market, the inventory to sales ratio are, are really, really high. For certain end markets such as electronics or consumers, uh, inventory to sales ratio is, is even above, is sort of reaching 20 years high. So yeah, I guess it will take, take a while for this inventory to wind down. And then also right now it's compounded by and market weakness.
4: How does this compare with when we've seen previous cycles in terms of how long this trend is lasting?
5: I've covered it for a long time. Um, you know, the obvious comparison is the 2008 global financial crisis, uh, where we had we had nine months of destocking there. And that, you know, that was unprecedented at that time. Um, but now, we're, you know, we've already gone through nine months in this cycle.
1: I think to that point, we've seen some of our companies report that, When you look through to their end clients, some of them start at this destocking cycle sitting with stock of about nine months, where they usually carry about one to two months safety stock prior to the supply chain issues that Pan Pan was talking about. So it's really difficult to say how long it's going to take before they run out of the normal safety stock and then start stocking up again.
4: Mike, can I ask, how optimistic are we that this is all down to the destocking trend? And you mentioned, I think, how long this has been going on. How long before we actually start thinking this is about the weakness in the end markets completely and it's not really down to destocking anymore?
5: Mm. Well, I mean, I think there is some end market weakness, but as Pan Pan has highlighted, uh, inventory levels are still elevated. Um, uh, and anecdotal comments from some of the companies, they've actually said the underlying demand. Is unchanged versus quarter one, so it seems that demand is not getting weaker for many companies. It really is just an inventory issue, but destocking has been going on since uh, Q3 of last year, really started in August last year, um, and visibility is very low in these companies. Four to six weeks uh, is is normal. Uh, so you know, I think Q2 is gone, obviously, and some of the outlook statements that we've seen for the rest of the year where they previously had some optimism around growth, have now assumed that there's going to be no growth in the rest of the years, which, which points to certainly destocking through Q3 as well.
4: Bam you're nodding. You agree with, with my point.
6: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And also I think for certain end market, for instance, I also cover agriculture, chemical companies. I met one of the company last week and actually they said so on the crop protection side, this stock may last even longer than end of this year and then it may even last um, until Q1 next year. But then company's visibility is really, really low. Mm -hmm.
0: That was analyst Tanpan Zhao with Mike Dolan and Liz Brockway, who were in conversation with Nina Flipman. And Anna, picking up on some of the points raised there, China is somewhere where we've been expecting a demand surge. And in fact, earlier this year, there was a rather odd term being banded around, revenge spending, to describe the pent up demand from consumers. But that picture looks very different now, doesn't it?
2: That's right. Uh, China's uh, reopening uh, did not follow the uh, template of uh, what we saw in the US and in Europe and the UK for a number of reasons. Uh, One of them was that actually the fiscal support wasn't as strong in China. And so as the economy reopened, we have seen the pickup in outbound tourism, in demand for luxury, high-end luxury products. Uh, But we have not seen broader pickup in consumption overall consumer confidence remains low uh, the property sector is the main drug we have not seen large uh, policy support both on the monetary and also on the fiscal front um, and in fact, we do not expect that to happen. We think that uh, recovery is going to be gradual. It remains fragile. It's more of a muddle through story from here as the policymakers continue to address uh, structural challenges. They're not looking to boost the economy a lot in this cycle.
0: So muddled through, you're not writing off China yet, are you?
2: We're not. We think that uh, growth will continue and we think that it's likely that uh, they will be able to hit uh, growth target this year. In fact, we're expecting 5.5% growth for this year, uh, given the base effect. Um, so we are expecting activity uh, to continue picking up, we're expecting consumption uh, and services sector in particular uh, to continue supporting the recovery. We are seeing some very targeted policy support um, and that could become a bit broader. But again, it's uh, mainly aiming at supporting uh, the property sector, um, uh, boosting that consumer confidence. Uh, But again, not a huge stimulus, uh, like the one that we saw after the global financial crisis.
0: And coming back to well, back to Europe, actually, and inflation, uh, Steve's already touched on this um, a little bit. But There are very different challenges um, in the UK and Europe. So what do you see as the the main role of the ECB and the Bank of England now and how they manage manage things, given that, particularly in the UK, inflation has, until very recently, seemed much stronger?
2: Well, the latest reading uh, gave a lot of relief to two markets, uh, and I'm sure Governor Bailey in particular, Uh, because it has showed that inflation is starting to recede. Uh, But the challenge is that it has to be... uh uh, a trend from here over the next few months. Um, and also we are seeing inflation expectations still very elevated across the board, particularly in the UK. Uh, so the BOE has to continue uh, being hawkish um, and sending those hawkish messages uh, of determination uh, to gain some credibility. It's fair to say they have lost some credibility uh, given uh, the, the track record in taming inflation in this cycle. uh, And they will have to continue being hawkish. And again, that's why in that trade off between letting inflation run a a little bit hot, uh, but not pushing economy into the recession, we think they will have to ultimately choose more tightening, getting inflation under control, uh, which means that we will see a recession here in the UK as well.
0: Steve, what would Andy Bailey have to do at the Bank of England to win your confidence again?
3: Look, I think, again, I think central banks are fighting last year's battle, no more so than in the UK. And I know that inflation appears to have been sticky up until now. But what I find astounding, really, is really the path of interest rates that priced into forward markets, into Sonia markets. And and when you look here, so when policy rates at 5% now, we've got another 100 basis points or so of hikes between now. And uh, the end of this year, and then into next year there's very little in the way of easing, if at all, about you know ten basis points or so. Now, I find that standing. I think you know in the first place, they get another hundred basis points of hikes from from um the the Bank of England, so that would take us to six percent and to hold rates at those levels for another year, and even by twenty twenty five there are no um inter you know, there're very few in the way of interest rate cuts actually that there's more in the back end of twenty five but i i and it's the same so to a certain extent in the e c b as well um in that there's another one hike of twenty five basis points or so priced and then and um in the next meeting and then for for the one year ahead you you're pretty much at the same level they can, can compare and contrast to what's happening in the US where the market thinks that the Fed are going to over tighten to a certain extent, and Mm -hmm. there's going to be a policy U-turn in that they'll have to ease interest rates into next year. I I find it standing that the Bank of England would keep rates at 6% and hold them there given the resets on mortgages, given I think it's a more interest rate sensitive economy than uh, in the US and the same with uh, Europe as well, which is already in recession. I think
0: that's where the biggest misprice is. Uh, well, I'm feeling somewhat sensitive to interest rates myself as my own mortgage comes up next year. So I hope you're right, uh, Steve. Rosanna, you, you wanted to come in.
2: Going
1: back to a point that was raised about the structure and the sensitivity for for the US consumer, um, there is one thing so that uh, it's, it's important to point out. After the great financial crisis, uh, all the system was obliged to switch to fixed rate mortgages. So effectively, uh, it's true. The U.S. consumer is uh, much less uh, sensitive uh, to uh, to swing in, uh, in in mortgage rate because a lot of people that bought their house in the last ten years uh, have locked themselves a very low interest rate for the next uh, ten to fifteen years. So it, it, it's correct that uh, we have this uh, this lengthening of the impact that. Uh, High interest rate uh, have on on the U.S. consumer, and and the fact that uh, the U.S. consumer had so so many savings it means that uh, he has not been using a lot of consumer credit because that's another channel where you can have a quite a high impact of uh, of high interest rate. We have just started seeing it this year in uh, in in the numbers of of the bank a little increase in use of 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 revolving credit, and clearly you know we needed to pay attention of. Of the low-income population, but at the same time, so with the job market so strong, uh, you know, I have difficulties in sort of uh, imagining uh, uh, the U.S. consumer under stress uh,
2: this year. No, but but I think uh, this is where this this uh, dilemma is, and I I don't um, I have to say I don't agree with Steve on. Uh, uh, I think on his views on the inf- on the inflation path, I don't think we're going to uh, see significant disinflation and even deflation in coming months. Uh, but because of this low sensitivity of the economy and of consumers, central banks have to do more. They have to hike more to get inflation down. Um, and so that, that that's uh, the, the whole irony of the situation is that a lot has been done to smooth out uh, the, the shocks to the economy, but because of low sensitivity, now they have to do more. Sure, if uh, inflation starts uh, falling very rapidly and it goes to, to target, I think they will do a very quick cost correction. Uh, and to a point, Steve, uh, uh, markets will have to price uh interest rate cuts more significantly next year. That is if you see inflation going uh, quickly to target. But if not, uh, they will try to keep rates potentially higher for longer. But we have never seen in in the history that we have of uh, central banks, particularly independent central banks, such a smooth path for rates. They keep rates high until something breaks and then they have to cut very quickly. So whatever market is pricing, this trajectory is Very unlikely, whatever view you you have from here, it's unlikely to be smooth.
3: Yeah, but but just to to go back on that point, so I I think you're right. I think central banks are having to over-tighten here. My my argument for a reversal here, particularly on QT, I think they'll probably have to abandon balance sheet reduction here um, at some stage. Um, But my argument for rate cuts into next year is not based on inflation coming back towards trend. I think that the over tightening they're doing and they've done already is gonna cause something to snap. And as you mentioned, you know, it's the credit market. So I think that's where you're seeing the tightening in loan standards and and you know, we've got refinancing coming up. It's gonna be I think that it's really gonna cause some damage. And so but they only get the green light if inflation is back somewhere close to target, which I do think is gonna happen. But um I, I think that that's my biggest concern is the over tightening causes something to snap here. But it's not it's not necessarily you know, about inflation coming back to target.
0: I feel like throwing in the journalistic cliche here, only time will tell. But um, uh, there's lots of discussion still to be had, um, which unfortunately we'll have to wait till next time because we're almost out of time. But we've still got time to play the Rich Pickings part of game, Hot Cakes and Hot Potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake or drop like a hot potato? Rosanna, it's your first time, so I'm going to invite you to go first. What's your hot cake? What are you buying like hot cakes?
1: everything apart attack. <laughs> <laughs> uh no but it's true you know to go back to the point that Steve was uh, was making on the breadth of the market. This year has been uh, has been very very peculiar in uh, in 27 years uh, of uh, of managing money. I've never seen a market uh, so much concentrated in uh, in some name. And listen, maybe the there's going to be some justification about what is going to come out of this AI uh, even if I have a little bit of uh, Difficulties in, uh, um, in in sizing uh, in sizing the revenue opportunity for a lot of uh, for a lot of the company that have gone up, but when you look at the rest of the market, it's practically done nothing, and it's been uh, very pleasing to see uh, the month of June and July, where finally we have seen a little bit uh, more breadth in the market, and there are plenty of sectors that are still trading well below the 20-year average in terms of whatever kind of valuation that you want to look at. And the the kind of sectors that I was mentioning before, where we already seen correction in the stock price and correction in the numbers like semiconductor, chemicals, uh, uh, and I can throw it a little bit also, the, the financial, are very great hunting grounds.
0: Great hunting grounds. There you go. All right. Thank you very much. Very briefly. What are your hot potatoes? What would you drop? I presume the tech stocks?
1: Yeah, because, uh, you know, you, you really needed to have a lot of faith uh, on the, the next 10 years or 20 years uh, of these uh, high top line revenue. And, uh, you know, they, they're quite big. This company I have a little bit of difficulties even mathematically to sort of make the numbers.
0: <laughs> oh, dear. OK, thank you very much. Steve, your hot cakes, please.
3: Oh, so hotcakes. So I would say keep it simple here, and I'll stick with my uh, thinking on, you know, keeping keeping to investment grade type of you know interest rate sensitive types of um, of uh, instruments here, uh, just ready to price in those uh, interest rate cuts. Basically, I think for the second half of this year, I think duration is going to be the trade as recession risks do rise and we see that there's over tightening from central banks. So I'd be long duration. And I would express that through, say, dollar investment grade, global act types of products. I think for hot potatoes, I, I'm anything sort of AI related, any kind of anything that's caught in the euphoria of AI. Which, you know, we all done our reading on this, and I, as much as we'd like to hope that this is going to be transformational and so on, I'm a, I'm a huge skeptic. And I guess if, if I'm wrong, humanity is going to be wiped out anyway, so we won't be around to see whether it is a hot <laughs> potato or not. So. <laughs>
0: Great. So we, we, we lose-lose. Right. Yeah,
2: imagine, imagine Chat GPT doing this uh, podcast. It wouldn't be as interesting exactly. and insightful. It
0: certainly wouldn't. It certainly wouldn't. Um, Anna, what though are you uh, interested in at the moment in terms of uh, your hotcakes?
2: I wanted to use uh, our multi-asset team uh, core asset allocation views. And it's a bit similar to what uh, Steve said. Overall, uh, we remain cautious on risk assets and and credit in particular. But within credit, um, uh, we like um, high quality credits and also uh, emerging market debt. Because a number of emerging markets started hiking rates earlier, and now they're ready to start cutting rates. um, And that that favours them uh, in the uh, EMD universe. Uh, So these are uh, hot cakes and hot potatoes on the other side, weaker, weaker DM corporates, weaker quality credits.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this episode. Thank you to Rosanna Bukhari, Steve Ellis and Anna Stupnitska for joining me, to Nina Flitman and our analysts, and of course to you for listening. As ever, you can read more analysis from Fidelity's experts on your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. The producer today was Holly Eastman with technical support from Canon Blitz and Connor Bailey. We'll be taking a short break over the summer, but we'll be back in your feeds in September. Until then, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye.
5: This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.